church? Come on, that was weak. Good morning. Welcome to the Ridge. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. No. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at the Ridge, and I'm, I'm very pleased to welcome you all this morning. Bring you greetings from Bobby and his family. Uh, they are on vacation this week, well-earned vacation, right? Uh, I was talking to uh, Isaiah last night, Isaiah's four, and, and uh, I said, where are you going? He said, Stone Mountain. I said, cool. He said, you know what Stone Mountain is? And I said, yeah, it's a big friggin' rock. He said, nope, it's a hotel. <laughs> so uh, let's, uh, let's remember Bobby and Danira and Isaiah and Emerson as they're on vacation this week and pray for their, uh, their rest and relaxation. If you're, uh, if you're just joining us today, there's a couple things you should know. First of all, we're in the middle of this series called Cow Tipping, uh, where we've been talking about some of the things that you don't normally talk about in church, uh, kind of tipping over some sacred cows, if you will. And uh, the other thing you should probably know is that I don't usually dress this way. Uh, we don't usually dress this way. Uh, but I'm dressed this way for a purpose, and I, I hope that that will become clear to you uh, as we go through. Uh, but today we're talking about one of the questions that was submitted. Last week we talked about, as you remember, what happens when we die. Today we're going to be talking about how do we know that the Bible is true. Now, I know if we're honest, I mean, we're all good church people. We want to say, yeah, we know the Bible's true. We believe that. But if we're honest and authentic and genuine and transparent, we're going to probably all admit that at one point in our life, we have wrestled with a question like that. Maybe you grew up in church, you know, you had a Christian family, and you've just always believed that the Bible is true. But, you know, you've probably questioned specific aspects. There may have even been time when you, you know, questioned your own faith. And, uh, you know, what happens if this was all a sham? What happens if somebody just made this up? Maybe you didn't grow up in church, and maybe you're really coming at this from a skeptic's point of view. But I, I think at some point in our life, we've all res- wrestled with those questions. You know, how do you expect me to believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? How do you expect me to believe that God created all that we see and all that we know in seven 24-hour periods, as, as the book of Genesis claims? Do you really expect me to believe that God destroyed the earth with a worldwide flood and started over with eight people? You know, am I really supposed to buy the fact that a prophet was swallowed whole by a fish and lived inside of his belly for three days and then spat back up to continue his mission on a, on a sandy beach? You know, I think a lot of people think in order to become a Christian, you just kind of have to close your eyes, turn off your brain. You know, some people say, check your brain at the door. And it's all about faith. We're just going to come in and just, just kind of believe because it feels good. Well, what I want to show to you today, what I want to try to prove to you today is that you don't have to check your brain at the door. That there is some very compelling evidence that Scripture is what it claims to be. We're going to look at some of those things today. How do we know that the Bible is true? Well, let's look at the evidence. The first thing that I'd like to point out to you is the Bible has an incredible record of fulfilled prophecy, the, the fulfilled prophecy of the Bible. You know, there are, uh, the, the Bible actually foretells specific events 
The Bible talks about things and describes them sometimes in great detail, years or even centuries before they actually came to pass. In fact, if you read through the pages of Scripture, uh, there are approximately 2,500 prophecies. 2,500 things that at some point in the Bible, some author somewhere said this is going to happen. Of those 2,500 things, approximately 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled. Not just vaguely, not just maybe, but to the letter, without error. 2,000 out of 2,500 have been fulfilled. Now, if you just take these individually, you know, the, just one prophecy, I think we'd all agree that yeah, you know, maybe that just was an accident. Maybe it was random. Maybe it just happened that way. And, but the odds of that happening, even conservative odds of that happening, are about 1 in 10. One in 10. Now, if you take 2,000 prophecies, 2,000 prophecies that have already been fulfilled to the letter... And you look at them as a whole because, you see, most of them are unrelated. Most of them are individual. They're not related to the others. So if you look at them as a whole, the chance of those 2,000 prophecies being fulfilled to the letter is 1 in 10. Hang with me, math class. To the 2,000th power. 1 in 10 to the 2,000th power. How many mathematicians we have here? Anybody, anybody remember exponents? Remember how that works? Well, let me show you how that works. This is actually this number, 10 to the 2,000th power. That's a 1 with 2,000 zeros behind it. Never mind. I'm not going to do that. 1 with 2,000 zeros behind it. The odds of 2,000 prophecies being fulfilled just by chance just by random, is mathematically impossible. One in 10 to the 2,000th power. So, you know, we can look at these records of fulfilled prophecies as evidence that the Bible is what it claims to be. Obviously, 2,000 prophecies, I'm not going to go through all of those with you today. But I would like to talk about a few, some that you're familiar with, and just kind of bring out some good examples. Did you know, sometime before 500 B.C., so 500 years before Christ was born, the prophet Daniel proclaimed that Israel's long-awaited Messiah would begin his public ministry. Now, that in itself is pretty cool. Just, just the prophecy that the Messiah is coming, that's pretty cool. But get this. Daniel said that the Messiah would come 483 years after the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's pretty specific, isn't it? 483 years after the decree was issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. This occurred in Daniel chapter 9. He further predicted that this Messiah would be, quote-unquote, cut off or killed, and that this event would take place prior to a second destruction of Jerusalem. All these events were fulfilled perfectly with the life, the birth, and the death of Jesus Christ. Go back even further. In approximately 700 B.C., the prophet Micah named the tiny village of Bethlehem 
as the birthplace of the Messiah. Now, we all know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's one of the most widely recognized and widely celebrated events in the history of mankind. But, you know, that in itself, again, that in itself is very cool. That 500 years before Micah, or 700 years before Micah said that the the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But here's the cool thing. Have you ever thought about this? Joseph and Mary weren't from Bethlehem. You know, even when... When the angel came and said, Mary, you're with child, you're going to bear a child. I don't know if she ever put two and two together, but if she knew prophecy, she knew that the the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. I live in Nazareth. How's that going to happen? Well, as you know from the, the early verses of Luke, that the emperor issued a decree that the whole world should be taxed and that everyone had to go to their hometown, the town of their ancestors, to be registered for the census. And so Mary and Joseph went together to Bethlehem. And that's where Jesus happened to be born, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah 700 years earlier. How about this one? The prophet Isaiah foretold that a conqueror named Cyrus would destroy Babylon. Now, you have to understand, Babylon was considered invincible. It was the largest, most significant, best fortified city in the history of civilization. The walls were considered to be impregnable. But Isaiah foretold that Cyrus would destroy Babylon, that he would subdue Egypt and most of the rest of the known world. This same man, said Isaiah, would decide to let the Jewish exiles in his territory go free without any payment of ransom. Now here's where it gets really cool. When Isaiah made this prophecy, it was 150 years before Cyrus was even born. It was 180 years before Cyrus performed any of these feats. And here's the kicker. He predicted that Cyrus would free the Jews. It was 80 years before the Jews were even taken captive. So when Isaiah said that Cyrus is going to free you guys, they're probably thinking, free us? From what? The claims of prophecy, the record of the fulfilled prophecy, I believe, is compelling evidence that Scripture is what it claims to be. But that's not all. I'd like to also point out to you its consistency. Its congruency. It has a central theme. You know, when you look at the Bible, we typically look at the Bible as one book. It's a very thick book. Most of us have a copy of it. But as you look at it, you know, we think about it having... um, It's one cohesive story from the beginning to the end. As you read through it from beginning to end, there's a lot of details, but it makes sense. It's one cohesive story. It has an appropriate beginning, talking about God as the creator and all of creation. It has a logical ending, taking us through God's plan of redemption and talking about the future. And all throughout Scripture, there's one central character. Am I right? It's Jesus, the Messiah. The Old Testament paves the way and points the way to the Messiah. The New Testament begins talking about him, his life, his death, his resurrection, his charge to his disciples to carry out his mission. And then the rest of the New Testament talks about how they did that. It has an appropriate beginning, a logical ending, a central character, and a consistent theme. Now, that may not seem so remarkable to you until you consider a couple of things. First of all, the Bible is not just one book. 
the Bible is actually 66 different books. From Genesis all the way through Revelation, those are each different books, yet they have a central theme. The Bible was written over a course of 1,500 years. One of the earliest written books, we believe, was Job all the way down to Revelation, spanned 1,500 years. In those, those uh, 66 books, they were written by 40 different authors, 40 different men. These men included kings and shepherds. They included fishermen and tax collectors, prophets, and a physician. As you read the books of the Bible, you'll know, you'll be able to tell that these guys had different backgrounds. They had different personalities. They had different perspectives. Their writing style is vastly different. Yet from beginning to end, they agree. They tell the same central story. The Bible was written on three different continents. It wasn't all in one place. It spanned all of the known world at that time. And did you know this? The Bible was also written in three different languages. The original languages of the Bible are Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. We have it translated into our language today in English. But it was originally written in three different languages. You know, you think about in ancient times, most of these guys, 40 40 different authors, they never met each other. Most of them did not even have access to the other people's writings. They were writing from different times and different places and different perspectives. Some of them, you know, in the New Testament, they had the Old Testament to look back on, but much of the New Testament was written by contemporaries. Naturally, they had no uh, Facebook, no Internet, no email, no faxes. They couldn't compare notes. They couldn't say, hey, I'm going to write this. Make sure you mention this. But yet, as you look throughout the Bible, there's incredible consistency. There's a logical beginning. There's an appropriate ending. And there's a central theme with a central character throughout. You know, as I think about this, how do you explain that? How do you explain that consistency from beginning to end? 1,500 years, 40 different men, three different languages and three different continents. I believe the only explanation is that the Bible claims, the Bible is what it claims to be. Now, First Peter, or Second Peter chapter 1, Peter wrote that the, the word of God was not written by the words of men. It was written by God, that he used men, but that the words were given to them by the Holy Spirit. And I believe as you look at the consistency, you'd have to agree that it's true. The third thing I'd like to point out to you is this, and it may be a little bit of a surprise to you, but the Bible is incredibly accurate archaeologically, historically, even scientifically. It's unique historical and scientific accuracy. There's a uh, an, uh, Dr. Nelson Gluick, who's one of the most foremost authors, uh, one of the most foremost authorities on uh, Israeli archaeology said this, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted biblical evidence. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. 
know, archaeologically, the Bible stands up as accurate. Everything that the Bible indicates as far as geography and and cultures and cities and archaeology has proved accurate over time. When it comes to science, it's very much the same. The Bible, many of the principles of modern science were recorded as facts of nature in the Bible long before scientists confirmed them experimentally. You know, long before we had the technology, the, uh, the mechanics, the ability to prove some of these things, the Bible was talking about them as true. For example, 740 years before Christ, the prophet Isaiah talked about the roundness of the earth. You know, as recently as the 15th century, we believed that the earth was flat. But the Bible says that the earth is round. In Ecclesiastes, 935 years before Christ, Solomon referred to what we now know as the hydrologic cycle and atmospheric circulation. In Leviticus, almost 1,500 years before Christ, Moses talked about the paramount importance of blood to the uh, safety and health and well-being of the human body. And 1,800 years before Christ, not Sir Isaac Newton, but Job talked about gravity. 1,800 years before Christ. Historically and scientifically, the Bible proves itself to be accurate. But, you know, don't just take my word for it. I encourage you today, go home, check some of these things out. If you have questions, if you have doubts, it's okay. We want you to know this is a safe place. This is an okay place for you to have questions. And I encourage you to go home and check some of these things out. In fact, Paul, when he wrote uh, his, one of his letters, he said that the church at Berea, he commended them. He said, these, these guys are cool because they always go and they search and they research and make sure that what I've said is true. The fourth thing that I'd like to point out to you, the last thing that I'd like to point out to you is, as evidence that the Bible is what it says it is, is its endurance. I mean, let's face it. We're talking about the number one all-time bestseller. The Bible has adherents, uh, has believers, has followers all throughout time. In every culture, in every people group, there are people who follow the Bible. And it doesn't matter who they are. They could be kings, they could be paupers, they could be educated or uneducated, rich and poor. The Bible is without question the most well-preserved, reliable ancient manuscript in the history of civilization couple of things I'd like to share with you. We talk about the endurance of Scripture. The Bible really has an astounding number of ancient manuscripts, more than any other book that's ever been written. There are 5,000 Greek manuscripts in existence. There are 10,000 Latin manuscripts and 9,000 other manuscripts for a total of 24,000 manuscripts in existence. Now, these manuscripts are either copies or portions of, uh, of the originals, and all of them date between 100 and 300 years of, of the original manuscripts. That's absolutely incredible. It's absolutely unheard of in the ancient world. 
There, in fact, there are some gospel fragments. You've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in Israel in, in the 1940s. There were parts found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, parts of the Gospels that dated as early as 50 A.D. Can you believe that? We found documents in the 1940s that were written, I mean, 50 years. That, there were people alive who knew Jesus when those documents were recorded. There, they were, could have been recorded by eyewitnesses. By contrast... You know, these numbers may not mean too much to you, but let me just share this with you. By contrast, you've heard of a guy named Plato. Did you know there's only seven copies of Plato's writings in existence? And of those seven copies, there's a gap of 1,200 years between when those copies were written and when Plato was alive. You've heard of a guy named Julius Caesar. There are 10 copies of Julius Caesar's writings. There's a gap of 1,000 years. And then uh, you've probably heard of Homer's Iliad. There's 643 original copies of Homer's Iliad with a gap of more than 500 years. And here we've got 24,000 copies of manuscripts, all within a 100 to 300 year time frame. It's incredible. Just, you know, just looking at that, you have to agree that the Bible was not only what it says it claims to be, but that it was miraculously preserved throughout time. F.F. Bruce was a, uh, a Scottish author. He said, there's no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good attestation as the New Testament. But what about the Old Testament? Again, I'll take you back to those Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in 1947. Some of those dated from the 3rd century B.C. all the way up to the 1st century A.D. These manuscripts predated the previous oldest manuscripts by more than 1,000 years. It's hard to get your head around that, isn't it? On these manuscripts, they found copies of every Old Testament book with the exception of Esther, and a number of other non-biblical writings as well. Not only that, but the agreement is 95% word for word. And experts say that that 5% margin is mainly spelling errors or what they consider to be a slip of the pen. The evidence is overwhelming. When taken as a whole... I think you'd have to conclude that the Bible is what it says it is. It is what it claims to be. But here's the thing. I always tell people this, that nobody ever came to, nobody ever came to faith, nobody ever came to Christ because they had all their questions answered. Right? Nobody ever became a believer because they lost an argument. <laughs> You know, uh, no matter how many facts I present to you today, no matter how many logical arguments I can present, no matter how much I try to persuade you, there's always going to be an element of faith. And that's why it's called faith. There's a couple things I want to share with you before, we, before we're done. And that's the first one. The first thing is that there will always be 
an element of faith. I'd like to turn your attention to Hebrews chapter 11. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. The the words will be up here on the screen. Hebrews 11 says this. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. That's pretty cool, huh? It gives us assurance about the things that we cannot see. And then he goes on to talk about some of the heroes of the Old Testament. He says, Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man, and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. And here it is, verse 6. It is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. But, you know, take you back to the beginning. Like I said, faith is not simply disengaging your brain, disengaging your intellect, and just walking blindly. Faith is the assurance, it says. Do you remember as a child how it felt when your birthday was approaching? Any birthdays this week? Nobody? Jacob? All right, we'll sing to you later. (laughs) We'll have John Monday sing to you. (laughs) That's an inside joke. Yeah, you have to hear it. Um, But, you know, when your birthday is coming, you have this kind of assurance that there's going to be some gifts and there's going to be some surprises, there's going to be some special treats, but you also know that there's some things that you don't know ahead of time. You see, birthdays, I think, are a unique blend of assurance and anticipation. And that's kind of how faith works. You see, faith doesn't encourage us. Faith doesn't tell us, you know, just believe. Faith is based on the things that we've already learned It's based on the things that we've already experienced. And that gives us assurance for the things that are ahead of us, for the things that we don't know, the questions that we don't know. It's not always easy. In fact, sometimes it's kind of like this.
after all these years, I still get chills watching that scene. You know, that's a great picture of faith. If you remember the movie, Indiana Jones had his book and, and he had put these clues together. And he, as he'd gone through that experience, you know, one after another, those, all those hypotheses, those, those clues, they'd all come to pass. Everything had been proven correct. And as he stood there on that precipice, you heard him say, no man can jump this. He's faced with that decision. I know what I've experienced. I know what I've learned. And I can't see how this is going to work out. But by faith, I take that step. That's a great picture of salvation as well. You know, the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. You know, as we stand there on that precipice with God on the other side, there's a chasm between us that none of us on our own can, can span. And we need, as we look at that chasm, we need a bridge. And that leads me to the second point. It's all about Jesus. You know, no matter how many facts we learn, there's always going to be an element of faith. But that faith needs something to be founded on, and that foundation is Jesus. You see, as we stand there on, that, on the edge of that chasm, looking with no hope, Jesus is that bridge. Jesus is the one that bridges that gap between us, between where we are and where God is. You know, I, I believe, I, based on my study and, and on my experience, I believe, I have the conviction that the Bible is what it says it is. But like I said, we want you to know this is a safe place to come with your doubts, with your questions. When it comes right down to it, there's not going to be a theology quiz to get into heaven. God's not going to ask you how you felt about seven literal days of creation or whether or not Jonah was, was literal or allegory. The only question is going to be, what did you do with Jesus? Let's, uh, I'm going to invite the band to come forward. Let's, uh, let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Like I said in the beginning, you know, this is a little bit of an unusual message for me. And as I was researching and trying to find the answers, you know, how do we really know that the Bible is true? Obviously, there's a lot of evidence, and we've talked about some of that today. But I want this to be more than just an intellectual exercise. If all we do is learn some facts and some things that we didn't know, that's not really going to change our lives. And I, I was thinking about it even this morning. I was really wrestling with that fact even this morning as I was having my first cup of coffee thinking, what do I want the people to do? What do I want you guys to do as a result of what you hear today? And I can sum it up in one word. It's belief. Believe. Now, you know, the easy thing for me as a preacher this morning is I don't know what that means for you. I know what it means for me. But I don't know what it means for everybody. You know, maybe you're here today and, and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ. Maybe you've never accepted him to make up that gap between you and where, and where God is. Maybe, maybe that's what believe means to you today. Maybe for you it's, you know, believing God about your marriage relationship. Believing what God says about your self-worth. Maybe it's trusting God God for the first time with your finances. 
Maybe there's a, a career step that you need to trust God for. I, I don't know. What I do know is that we're here. The Ridge Church is here. We've committed to doing life together, and we're happy to walk through, through those decisions with you, whatever that may be. You know, if it's the first thing I talked about, if it's coming to faith in Christ, let's get that done today. If we need to talk, we're here to talk. If you need to pray, you come forward and pray. Somebody will meet you up here and we'll pray together. But believe. Take that step of faith. Based on what you know and based on what you've experienced, trust God for the unknown. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And as we look back through history and through time and science and archaeology, we're just astounded that we have your word, that we have the testimonies of eyewitnesses, of people whose lives were changed forever because of their interaction with you. We pray that as we accept that in our lives, that you would use your word to change us from the inside out. Give us faith based on what we know, what we've experienced, what we've seen in others' lives even, to trust you for the unknown. We pray that as you do that, you would change us individually, that you would change our families, that you would change our church, and through our church that you would change this community. In Christ's name we pray.